This is Lovers and Critics, the podcast where we analyze your favorite films from two different perspectives, from the obsessed fan to that notorious critic. This is the third installment of our Harry Potter series. Let's go. Hey everybody, thank you for joining us back with Lovers and Critics. Today we're going to be talking about Harry Potter Movie 5 and Harry Potter Movie 6, The Order of the Phoenix and The Half-Blood Prince. Here is Lovers and Critics. Alright, welcome back again everybody. Uh, Let's start off with Harry Potter and The Order of the Phoenix. Is everybody ready for their notes? Ready. Okay, we hope everyone listening out there doesn't grill us too hard. This is probably going to be the movie that I kind of come down on the hardest, even though I'm still a fan. I am a fan of this movie. Um, But let's go ahead and start off with our rankings. So, I will start the book. This is probably my third favorite book. My third favorite book. Caleb? Um, hmm. It's so hard to put down... I don't even remember what my other ones were, to be honest with you. That um, part. <laughs> with you. Am I the only one here that just has a complete loyalty to list? Am I the yes. only one that keeps it sacred? Yes. I, I think there's, in my head, there's like, okay, that one's pretty good. That one's great. That one's awesome. But this one's pretty good, I'd say, book-wise. So, my list is numerical, and your list is bad to... Pretty good. Yeah. And this one's pretty good. Well. I think I fall somewhere in between the two of you. Like, definitely, you know, Prisoner of Askin is my number one. But then I start getting down the list. I'm like, well, this one's still pretty good. I don't want to give anybody the bottom spot. Okay. Caleb? Are we still talking about book order? Okay. Um, probably like the fifth or sixth one. And that's a good fifth or sixth. Okay. Jennifer, what about you? I'm gonna give it fourth or fifth. It's somewhere right in that that mid. Wow, middle so section. mine's a lot higher than yours. Okay, yes, let me, but let me. we also know that you really love Half Blood Prince. Where no, that's the movie. That's the movie. Where the rest of us don't. I would say I, I take back what I said. Um, I'll put this somewhere with Goblet of Fire, and mm-hmm. so that's probably like sixth or seventh for me. We're talking about the book, right? Yeah. Goblet of Fire is your sixth or seventh? You you almost put Goblet of Fire as the worst book in the series? Well, I mean, it has to be somewhere. <laughs> that's that's wow. the problem. It has, to have, it has to be somewhere. Man, Goblet of Fire is my favorite book. Okay, all right. Let's go to movies. All right? Okay. My, my book was number three. This is probably also my third favorite movie as well. It's pretty high up there for me. And I do have reasons to justify it. Let's go the opposite order. Uh, Jennifer, where does this fall with your movie list? It would probably sit a lot higher if it weren't for how much is like left out, how many great antics and stories were left out. Um, so I'm, I'm going to put it towards the bottom of the list. It's, it's going to be somewhere around six. Okay. All right, Caleb? Uh, movie, it's... Also, probably sixth or seventh on my list. So, you two just absolutely 
if you're doing your reread or a rewatch, you almost dread this book and movie. Uh, rewatching this, I actually got bored and started scrolling through my Discord. <laughs> I just, and it might be not because it's a bad movie or a bad book. I just really, really, really hate Dolores Umbridge to the like depths of my soul. I hate her more than Voldemort. To me, she's the utter, like the most villainous character in the series for me. Okay, well, somebody's been on Reddit, am I right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Let's go to number two. Let's start off. What do we love about these entries? Okay, what do we like? What do we love about the Order of the Phoenix into the canon of the Second Wizarding World? Um, I can start just to kind of get the juices flowing a little bit. Um, probably for me, and I'm sure that Jennifer will touch in a lot. You and Jennifer both will touch in a lot when it comes to Ravenclaw know-it-all. But I'm going to start with the introduction of the great characters that will end up following Harry until the end of the series. So, we have got Luna Lovegood. Yep. Bellatrix Lestrange is introduced, I guess, in the fourth movie and fourth book, but we don't really get anything from her until really this book slash movie. Right. So I would say this is probably more of a solid introduction for Bellatrix. Um, we also get Nymphadora Tonks, Creature, Dolores Umbridge, who, as Jennifer pointed out, is the ultimate villain over Voldemort. <laughs> Letting our emotions fly right now. For me. And also an interesting character that I thought I would put down, who a lot of people wouldn't, but it probably one of the most central characters that is introduced in this book and movie the room of requirements a mind of its own i would i would consider the room of requirements almost a character like aspect of the movie it's definitely going to play in into the story continuing on from here yes this is our introduction to it and we will use it at least once more before the very end where we use it a lot okay let me hike up my glasses real quick and <laughs> say much like bellatrix the room of requirement was kind of introduced in book four. Yes, mm-hmm. but um, it, but no one uses the room of requirements until book five. Yeah, correct. The introduction to our main characters, just like Bellatrix, is in this book. It, it's it's almost you know almost like Voldemort. You know, we really don't get a solid introduction of Voldemort. We I mean we get Tom Riddle in the second in the mm-hmm. second one. Right. And like the pale imitation of Voldemort. And we get the imitation Quirrell's. of Voldemort that's mixed with Quirrell's soul. Mm-hmm. But we really don't get Voldemort, Voldemort until the fourth book. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I would see Bellatrix and the rumor requirements for this. Um, another one of my favorite things, and if you anybody wants to elaborate on this, is the Weasley Exodus from Hogwarts. <laughs> Towards the you know toward towards the end of the book. This is probably one movie. of the most shining moments for the Weasley twins, just in the whole series. They they get so much, so much fun to do in this book, and yes. it's it's so cut out of the films. And, and the and, and it is, and the way the Weasley Exodus is really going to play into one of our themes that we're going to talk about when we talk about education. So with that being uh, said, before before we go on. Uh, just so we're clear how different the book is from the movie sometimes. Whenever you said the Weasley Exodus, my mind went to Percy leaving the family and joining the ministry. 
which happens in the book. Would you wait for Ravenclaw know it all? I mean, fair enough. I guess like we're talking about. I mean, but we are talking about things we love about the movie and book. So, did you, would you say that? Percy leaving the family to join the ministry is a favorite. I think he had the right idea. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You would. Okay. Um, anybody else want to add anything? Uh, like, let's go around. What do you at least, can? what what goodness can you find in Order of the Phoenix? Um, so, um, I really, re-watching it, I <clears throat> do like whenever it's just like all of a sudden like, Sirius Black and Harry are fighting in front of the veil or the veil and just out of nowhere Bellatrix apparates and kills Sirius and like everything just goes quiet as he like falls backwards into it and it motivates Harry enough to chase after Bellatrix and use an unforgivable curse against her. That's that's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy. Um, and I do apologize. Let's even talk about what the Order of the Phoenix is. Jennifer, what is the Order of the Phoenix? The Order of the Phoenix is going to be our, our gathering of wizards who are set to oppose you know, the essential Death Eaters. You know, you've got Voldemort, you got Harry, but you've got to have the people who fight the battle with them on either right. side. So this is our introduction to who all fills out the Order of the Phoenix. Characters like Lupin and Sirius and Tonks and the Weasleys and Mad-Eye, Kingsley Shacklebolt. So this is the second time the Order of the Phoenix has banded together, correct? Correct. Does it ever say in the book because I know it does it in the movie. Does it ever say in the book if the Weasleys are original members? They are and it shows that they are. And, Molly and Weasley are present in the original photo, I believe, in the um, movie. Her brothers were actually killed. In Molly's? The, yes. That's right. And that's the watch that Harry eventually inherits was Molly's brothers. Okay. Um, and can we, there's also, there's something chivalric about the parents' children are pretty much the saviors the second go around. Right? Like with Ron and Harry... Now, granted, you know, like, everybody pretty much comes back that's still alive. But it's not really up to them anymore. It's up to them to help. It's the next the generation three. that yes. really turns the tide. Yes. All right, um, Jennifer, do you have anything you want to add about what you love about the Order of the Phoenix entry into the Potterverse? Despite how much I hate her, the casting for Umbridge is so amazing. It's one of those actors that comes along and does such a good job that you kind of want to punch him in the street if you ever see him. Right. Like like Joffrey Baratheon. Like you, you just they've done such a good job at being that villain that you just want to kick him off the cliff. Okay, and we'll get more with casting a little bit later. All right, so if that's it for that let's go on to our next category ravenclaw know-it-all this is the part of the podcast where caleb and jennifer our resident ravenclaws will tell us actually what the movie got wrong and actually what was left out so let's start with our list we are looking for important events sequences or characters that were not present in the movie but add to the overall plot of the book. We'll start with the beginning of the summer for Harry. 
we uh we miss out on a slew of letters that Harry gets. He doesn't just get one letter saying that he's been expelled. He gets like four or five letters that come through. And those are important because, you know, he gets the ministry's letter. He gets a letter from Mr. Weasley and Sirius talking about what happened and that they're working on things to make sure that Harry doesn't get expelled and that his wand isn't destroyed. And then they get another letter from the ministry saying that he has to go to court but isn't going to lose his wand. And then the most important letter that comes is Dumbledore's. We don't know it's Dumbledore's at the time. We just know it's a mysterious howler sent to Petunia to, to remind her... Remember my words. Um, and I, I think that this movie also glosses over the point that what he's saying is as long as Harry can call this place home, Voldemort can't touch him. And this movie doesn't really say that. At all. No. Yeah. And that's important. That's an important detail. That's why despite all the misery that comes with Harry living with the Dursleys, it's important that he's here. And it shows that Dumbledore knew that at some point Voldemort or that Voldemort was still out there and that he was still going to come back and that Harry was going to need that protection. Is there any sort of justice or motivation that could be had or motivated Harry if the Dursleys were attacked? Like, let's say Privet Drive was destroyed. Let's say Vernon and Petunia and Dudley are no more. Does that weigh on Harry? I mean, I think... As much as it would any of the other characters do? I think with Dudley being attacked by the Dementor and the fact that Harry saves him instead of just leaving him behind says that despite the torment and torture that that family has caused him, they're still, in some sense, family. And, um... He, I think in the books it talks about how if there was one person Harry's age that he doesn't like any more than Dudley, it's Draco. And in the seventh book, he actually does save Draco's life mm-hmm. from the okay. fire. Fair enough, fair enough, I fair think enough. at the end of the day, Harry's a good person no matter how much he's been tormented. I think the only exception to that uh, is Dolores. Because he definitely lets her be dragged off into the forest by the centaurs. Okay. So, our next point is going to be Grimwald Place. We spend a lot of time in Grimwald Place in the summer, and that's this is going to be one of those, hey, details that is completely left out, but we see the locket. We see Voldemort's locket, or Salazar Slytherin's locket, in Grimwald Place, and we get that first inclination that this is something dark, even though we don't know what it is. Um... Also, Mundungus is left out of this one. Out of this, he was supposed to be watching Harry and is never even mentioned throughout the whole movie. Um, and also, along with the third movie, it does not mention what secret keepers are. No, it doesn't, and that is a huge, huge, important detail. That it, that's why Sirius gets blamed for the death of the Potters, even though in the end it was really Wormtail's fault because. They change secret keepers to Wormtail instead of Sirius. And for our listeners out there, what are secret keepers? Secret keepers are basically someone told, in this particular case, the location. So Sirius is the only person who knows where James and Lily are, but then he feels that it's dangerous for him to know. 
So they swap to Wormtail, but not knowing that Wormtail is a secret agent of the Dark Lord, and he gives that information to Voldemort, therefore revealing their secret location. Okay. The ultimate betrayal of trust. Okay. Do we have anything else for Ravenclaw know it all? Oh, yes, we have several things. So we've got, um, this is a minor detail, but I think it's important because it yet again shows how many different creatures and things that are... How much magic is in this world? And that's Tonks being a metamorphomagus. And that she can change at will. Unlike using transfiguration or potions, she can change her appearance from hair color to facial structure to just anything. And I think that's an important detail to her character, who is totally glossed over in the series. We also, like Caleb said earlier, we have the defection of um, Percy. From the family and that plays into Ron's character later in the series because Percy will send letters telling Ron to stay away from Harry so so far with what you said so I'm the cinephile lover right mm-hmm. so far with everything that you said I can justify those things not being mentioned or brought up in the movie because we only have two to two and a half hours right right but Percy Pretty much abandoning his family in favor of politics Mm -hmm. and a job is probably one of the most important things I feel like you just mentioned because the Weasley family is our family. That's why we love them so much. Like even if it's not how our family acts, most of us love the Weasleys because that's how we wish our family did love each other, right? It may not necessarily be that we want the same socioeconomic status as the Weasleys, right? Or the hand-me-downs or the oversight because there's so many kids that like we forget whose accomplishments are whose. But it's that bond and that unity. And the breaking of that bond and unity not only is so detrimental to Ron's character, who like Hermione barely gets any character development through the whole series. She's still always the smart, witty one. Mm-hmm. Ron is still the brave best friend who will come in clutch in the end, though he'll bumble his way through it. Right? And Harry is kind of almost the only one who gets any sort of character development from being this shy, timid kid who has no idea who he is or what the magic world is to accepting his role as, as, as the chosen one and fighting to the very end for the people he loves. And I think that Percy breaking away from the Weasley family is an important detail that we all do miss. Yes. Um, I'm going to try to touch on a few more real quick. Um <clears throat> The, there's a two-way mirror that Sirius gives Harry so that they can not necessarily keep in contact but see each other. Um, and it's it's a detail that's completely left out but is brought back in the end seri- in the end of the series in the movies to explain Aberforth and his introduction and him helping them along the way. And I think we totally miss out on that and any explanation of it. We just get, Harry has this random shard of mirror at the end of the series and you get no explanation why or where it came from, but it's a gift from Sirius. That's fair. Um, this this is a detail that touches on how dark things are about to get. While cleaning out the house, Molly comes across a bogger that she's trying to get rid of, and it turns into, obviously, her most fear, her greatest fear, and that being the loss of her family, and she sees the complete death of her entire family, and Harry has to witness her upset over that and how distraught she is. And I think that's an important moment for Harry to see how bad things are about to get. It's also foreshadowing. 
It is. It really is. Because she's going to lose several family members. And an ear. And an ear. I'm holding. Um, this is a detail that's important in the series. It, it kind of shows the loneliness that comes with this movie for Harry. How much time he's going to end up spending alone. And that's Hermione and Ron becoming prefix. And kind of how upset Harry is that Ron became a prefect over him. So it's a small little thing between the two of them. It's a nice moment for Ron because he finally gets to say, you know, I got something. I got to be a prefect and that's a big moment for Ron. But it's it's an important detail just to show how alone Harry's going to be the whole year. But can we also just kind of suggest about the quality of student that's in the Gryffindor house <laughs> that Ron, Ron is the one, you know, like it's not Neville or, you know, Seamus, Seamus or Dean or Dean or even, you know, just any, 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 like literally just a random person we've ever heard of before. It's Ron. It's Ron. Okay. Um, we, of course, we miss out on Quidditch just like every year. Yeah. Um, we, we definitely kind of get the, the, the feel that Umbridge has taken over the school. One of the things that's kind of left out is. Hedwig's injury showing that they're like handling all of their mail and I mean every bit one of my favorite parts though that's missing is St. Mungo's the visit to St. Mungo's when Mr. Weasley gets hurt introduces Neville's parents and we get to revisit Gildor Lockhart for a moment but we get to see what the wizarding war the toll that it took beyond just killing people like they are mentally gone they don't know who their son is, and we have to see this heartbreaking moment for Neville that he comes and visits them every time, and the only thing he has from them are these little candy wrappers. Sad. It is. It's a very sad moment that we totally miss out. We miss out on the many Weasley pranks and the fact that the teachers have completely refused to help Umbridge in any way by doing things like uh, turning a corridor into a swamp. Right, and so what you're referencing is all... The pranks that the Weasleys, that the twins play on Umbridge. Before they leave the school. Before they leave the school. Before they finally decide that education's not for us. We've got bigger things we can do and leave. Um, trying to check my notes real quick to see if I'm forgetting anything. The, the most we get is uh, not my foot lick doing a little fist bump <laughs> whenever they're riding off. I'm not going to lie. A, a little cringy. A little cringy because he's just he just kind of looks around just like mm, and he looks back around like if anybody saw him it's it's a little cringy. This is gonna cut. be my my last one and it's um it's at the very very end it's uh, after Sirius has died that it's not love although love is the motivation for much of the series that gets Harry away from the possession moment of Voldemort. It's grief. It's how very distraught Harry is in this moment. He literally just lost. His, what he feels at this moment is his only family. He hasn't really recognized, I don't think, that the Weasleys are also his family and that Hermione is his family. But the person he's connected in this moment as a kid, this is my family. This is my way away from the Dursleys. I don't have my parents, but I have Sirius. I have my godfather. And he just lost that connection completely and is just torn to pieces. I'm going to have to go with Caleb and saying this is a great moment. Because it lets us know that Harry's not this all-white, do-no-wrong moral compass. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever he attempts to curse Bellatrix, 
in his grief. It lets us know that he's just as human as, as, as Voldemort and anybody yes. else. And we miss out, I think, on a lot of exposition explaining why Voldemort, or not Voldemort, but why Dumbledore does what he does throughout Harry's years. Mm-hmm. It just kind of glosses over, like... He really you, prepares. All you really need to know is that neither can live while one survives. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and he sets up so much of the things that come, and the things that were, like like the prophecy. Like, he's the one that suggests the Potters go into hiding... Because of the, the prophecy. Okay. Well, let's get to tone and theme. A very important aspect whenever we're talking about book versus movie. Um, the book, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, is definitely a little ominous. Mm-hmm. And we know that it's like Goblet of Fire. It kind of intensifies that idea that dreadful things are yet to come or about to come. But also the book and many aspects of it is very playful and lighthearted. So like the Weasley pranks mm-hmm. are playful and lighthearted. But we also have this moment whenever Harry is talking to Ron and Hermione about his date with Cho. And he completely doesn't understand what happened. And then Ron looks at Hermione and seriously asks her, can you write a book? For so that way boys can learn how to understand girls, <laughs> and it's like this really funny moment. But like Ron's being serious. It's also a really quick-witted moment for Hermione because he's like, "Can one person really feel that many emotions at once?" And she's like, "Just because you have the emotional range of a teaspoon doesn't mean everyone else does." Right, and then we've got that moment where like whenever Harry yells at Umbridge, and then McGonagall is like sitting there and about to chastise him. But instead of like, you know, getting onto him like she should, she offers him a cookie. Here's a biscuit. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we've got all these playful, heartfelt moments, but I do personally do not think that those are present in the movie. They aren't. That moment you just spoke of isn't in the movie. I think that that the that the movie is just one giant two an hour and fourteen minute ball of dread and the absence of light. And snow and winter and cold and dreary. And maybe it's supposed to feel that way, right? But at the same time, I really think we miss out on a lot of these lighthearted moments. Because these lighthearted moments are what help keep our characters sane. Mm-hmm. It's what help humanizes them. Yeah, it's they're, they're important details. And I look forward to the day that someone decides to... Make a TV series out of this. <laughs> okay, let's get to our themes. Definition of education. So, we haven't really had a problem with the way Hogwarts has been ran education-wise. Yeah. Up until we get to this book, whenever Dolores Umbridge refuses to actually show her students how to perform any spells or charms for the defense against the dark arts. And correct me if I'm wrong, Caleb, is it not just defense against the dark arts? She tries to influence the other teachers as well? Into doing non-magical training? I don't remember that. Um, but I do know that, like, um, the the big casting off point is, like, at the very first class, whenever Hermione raises her hand and says she's already read the book, as Hermione does, and says there's nothing in here about using spells. Yeah. Right. So we have, we have this one with, with Defense Against the Dark Arts. We also have the moment... Whenever Umbridge expels Trelawney. 
Yeah. Right, yeah. and cast her out of her position. Because she says she's not good enough at what she does. And that's how we get the introduction of Friends, the centaur. Who is also absent in the movie. Who is completely left out. Who is also absent in the movie. And if anybody knows, if you've read the book, I love Sybil Trelawney. Well, but so Friends is the divinations teacher he really is and the girls swoon right i think he's amazing but we also have this moment where umbridge doesn't like centaurs Since, no she like doesn't. this is a dumbledore appointed appointed position here. over and yep any any kind of half breed so hagrid being half giant mm-hmm. the centaurs being half horse. yes so this definition of education let's talk about that for a quick second Umbridge comes in and tries to change the way Hogwarts students learn. Mm -hmm. But for what purpose? Why does she not want them to know spells? We know that she really has this deep faith to the ministry, not Voldemort. In in her particular case, because she is taking over the position of Defense Against the Dark Arts, it's driven out of a fear that Dumbledore will raise an army to take over the ministry. Because at this point, it's still very much Harry and Dumbledore's word against everyone else's beliefs. So what you're saying is that education has become political. Yes. Much like in real in real life. Correct. It's not. It's no longer about educating our children and, and preparing them for just whatever's to come in their future. But instead, it's about we don't feel they need to know that because they may it's, try to topple us. Yeah, it's dangerous for them to have such power. So, let's talk about another curveball. I know fans of the series are always joking, and I think J.K. Rowling has addressed it, but what about like normal things that everybody needs to know, like reading and Math. writing and arithmetic, right? Well, we Science. Know, we know they can read, and I guess we can assume that they're taught by their parents on yes. the grounds of like normal education as far as grammar and So, and we know that... Like- we know that whenever they come into Hogwarts, they already have this basic set of skills. Yes. So really, it's about the wizard education, mm-hmm. correct? The magical education. What does that mean for Fred and George, who leave halfway through their sixth year? Is it not their seventh year? Is it their seventh year? I thought they were a year no, older I think than Ron and Hermione. I'm sorry, the two years? Yeah. Okay. This is their last year, and they leave at the in, or but yeah, midway like, through their last like year. Like they leave midway through, like they're almost done. And they're like, we don't need school. And they go off and they become successful entrepreneurs. Because I think it's one of those things where, I mean, it's your seventh year. And just like your senior year in high school, what is there really left to gain? You know, that's why you see so many kids who want to drop out because I know everything I need to know. But with Fred and George, they have a plan. And they've had a plan for quite some time. They know they want to, you know, open this shop. They've known that since Goblet of Fire. Right. And then we have moments in this book and the next book where multiple characters tell Harry that their parents didn't want them to go back to school anymore. Mm-hmm. So is there a value on Hogwarts education or is it just tradition? I, I like, I know for Harry to be like an aura, he has to have, he has to have a newt in his transfiguration charms, potions, um, a defense against certain dark arts. Yeah, so I guess in the ministry's eyes, there has they have to have some kind of educational value, but other than that, I don't think it's really touched upon. Although to be fair, in the in 
in Harry Potter as a series, there's never really any explanation beyond, as far as jobs, beyond the ministry. It's like, ministry jobs, or they work at home. Yes. Or they own a shop. <clears throat> like, Ollivander, or Madame Malkin, Flourisham Lots. So, okay, yes. I, I think it's just safe to say that this idea comes through in both the movie and the book. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about Unity. This is one of the very first, if not the first movie, mind you, if you will, um, that Goblet of Fire still had a division between Cedric and Harry. That this is the first time where we see multiple houses coming together in order to fight against a common a common evil. So you have people from Ravenclaw, Hufflepuff, and Gryffindor forming Dumbledore's army. Yes. To actually practice spells. Instead of getting no education in what their opinion of it is. Yes, and I don't know about you, I will say this, I am supposed to be the lover here, but man, those moments in the movie, they just do not shine well because it just seems like Harry has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> Which... When in reality, he may not be the best teacher because he's so young, mm-hmm. but I feel like I get a stronger sense that these kids are learning and are behind him mm-hmm. in the book Whereas in the movie, he's... They're ahead of him, yeah. some of these kids. Yeah. Yes. I think it's an important detail that's kind of glossed over of how powerful Harry is. Like, I saw a meme the other day that was talking about how 99% of the Harry Potter team is Hermione. And I don't think that's fair because Harry is quite powerful and, and is quick to learn, especially things in Defense Against the Dark Arts. He even outshines Hermione in that skill when Lupin's teaching... I mean, at 13, he learns how to do a full-bodied Patronus, which is an extremely difficult task. Yes. And actually, in the next book, the only outstanding Hermione doesn't get is the Defense Against the Dark Arts, which Harry gets. Mm-hmm. Love it. Last one, communication. I honestly feel like what Caleb said has already been kind of rung true that the movie leaves out a reason, leaves out the reasons why Dumbledore acted the way he did. Mm-hmm. But what I do think the movie does get across is that Harry feels completely and utterly alone because he has no one to talk to or no one to communicate with him. And as I pointed out, they leave out the reason Harry is so alone because as prefix. Ron and Hermione have patrol duties that they have to take care of, so they're absent a lot more this go-around because when they're not doing homework, they're out doing that. And we also, I just want to real quick point out that I left this out earlier, Harry and the Weasley twins completely get kicked out of Quidditch for life. Yes. They get banned for Quidditch for life because of Dolores because Harry stands up to Dolores and the twins back him up. And we lose out on... Some glorious, glorious moments there because that's another reason Harry ends up being so alone. He loses out on one more thing that he has people to associate with. And the reason they do get banned, and it's a particular form of injustice, is that um, Malfoy's making fun of his mother, calling her a mudblood, mm-hmm. and then seeing, saying, I don't know how you can stand this, or I don't know how you can stand the stench of the Weasley house, but it must remind you of your mudblood mother. And they all three hear this, and they just rush him down. And instead of everybody getting punishment, it's just... The twins and Harry. Yeah. 
And it's a lifetime ban. I mean, that ban is lifted in the next book, but it's you a pretty... You the movie. <laughs> right. It's a pretty, pretty harsh moment. It's, it, like I said, it just caters to how alone Harry is and how much he loses in this book. He loses, like, his trio. He loses Quidditch. Dumbledore's not really talking to him, not communicate anything with him. So he's just kind of utterly alone. Yes. Even uh, Luna says to Harry in the movie, if I was Voldemort, I would want you to feel alone. Yeah. Which makes you wonder why why Dumbledore would make Harry feel alone if that was the thing that Voldemort was looking for. Um, it kind of goes into it that he... Another reason that Harry feels alone is because he feels like he's getting possessed by Voldemort. True. And he's seeing Dum- all the visions. And Dumbledore didn't want Voldemort to know that Harry and Dumbledore have a special student-teacher relationship. Friend, yeah, that he could exploit. Okay, let's move on to cinephile cam. Boom, 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 boom. This is where I big brain you, everybody, and we talk about the great great additions that the movie added and that what we love about the movie primarily the casting and directing so first thing we're going to talk about is david yates so this is the director for the fifth movie and will actually be the director for the rest of them right so david yates does order the phoenix then half-blood prince both deathly hallows and both of the fantastic beast movies correct he is a relatively unknown director so this is pretty much what he is known for mm-hmm. are the are is the back half of the Harry Potter uh, film franchise and the Fantastic Beasts and where to find the movies. Um, do you think aesthetic directing that he takes eight hundred to not because he has the task. He's the one who pretty much has to take the big books and put them in a feature movie for kids. Remember, this is this is a novel aimed at children and young adults and the parents having to go watch them. They can't make a three and a half, four hour Lord of the Rings style movie. They have to make something that's digestible for the public and for children to sit through. With that with that in mind, do you think David Yates does the best job one could do? Or at least a good attempt at one could do with turning 800 to 900 pages into two-hour movies. I think he almost does it. I think with the with the exception of some of the things we've pointed out, like Grimwald Place and, and some of the things and aspects that make Harry so alone in this particular movie, he does a good job of translating. Now he doesn't write them. No, no, but I mean, as a film, he, he does a good job of getting the other details there. Okay. Caleb, anything? Um, I... I don't think I could do better, personally, obviously. Um, but I like... He, he gave... I'm pretty sure he tried his hardest, but um, at least he did add stuff like in Goblet of Fire. True, 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 true. Now, let's talk about the stunning, stunning cast that gets added to this movie. Starting with Dolores Umbridge with Imelda Staunton. Just so we're clear... I think I think the Potter universe is unified almost that Dolores Umbridge might be more hated than Voldemort, than Filch, mm-hmm. than Gilderoy Lockhart, than she's, Death Eaters. She's such a heinous character. Than I mean, Lucius Malfoy. 
Harry spends a lot of time in detention with her. Like that 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 mark on his hand is permanent. Right. And what I love about this is Imelda Staunton truly, truly makes us hate her, right? Oh yeah. She She's does. it's one of those iconic roles when we're like, Oh my goodness, I cannot stand this person. Mm-hmm. We hate her. I'll note that she plays um one of the fairies in the Disney Maleficent film and it was really, really difficult for me to be okay with that. So that's actually one thing I was gonna get at was this is not her norm. Mm-mm. So she's primarily known for playing the comedic relief in almost every Shakespeare movie adaptation you can think of. From Twelfth Night to Much Ado About Nothing. I'm sorry, not Much Ado About Nothing. Um, the one where they get lost in A Midsummer Night's Dream. She's also known for her incredible voice actor work mm-hmm. in Maleficent, where she plays some someone funny. She's also in a childhood classic for Caleb and I, Chicken Run. <laughs> and then she's also in uh, Aunt Lucy and both Paddington movies. Mm-hmm. And for her to play someone so vile. It's it's a change of pace, certainly. And she does it just yeah. remarkably. It's true acting. It really is. Like, you just, you don't get much better than, than that. It's so sad that, that... The best acting in these movies come from the su- from the secondary characters. <laughs> um, Bellatrix was strange. Helena Bonham Carter. Okay, just... yeah, yeah. Jennifer's about to go on a spiel. Shut up. She is remarkable. She does an excellent job with um, unusual characters, much like Johnny Depp. She she excels at odd. And typically, she doesn't play someone so crazy correct she plays odd but she plays odd very refined yes like mrs lovett and uh the demon barbara fleet right or you know the queen of hearts in alice in wonder you know like even that character has got sort of a dignified presence about Mm -hmm. them and bellatrix is literally like that cannonball I that's mean, just like to, ready to yeet anything that crosses her path. We'll point out the moment where she, uh, as soon as Azkaban blows up in the last film, she like literally licks Rolls the dark eyes. mark. Yeah. Like she really gets into that crazy character. Yes. And this is all coming from a whole bunch of middle-aged men and women who are literally schoolyard bullying a bunch of high school <laughs> students. Do you like, think a bunch of children could kill could take down us? Like 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 what would happen, you know, like ten years later, if like, you know, like they're like in their fifties and like Harry, Ron, Hermione, Neville, they're all like in their mid twenties. Like it's a completely different scenario. It, it just like he just walk up to Lucius and be like Protego and then just snatches one out of his hand and break yeah. it in half. <laughs> or like at this point, Lucius like 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 his you know arthritis has gotten so bad he needs like a walker, much less the cane. Now, now, let's let's remember that wizards live a very long time, so fifty is is still pretty young. Right, but it still doesn't mean that their bones aren't going to go all, you know get fragile. Yeah, they got magic; they can deal with that. So another thing, another well, character. Oh <laughs> no, I just meant there's some stuff in this universe that's like. We have magic. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Caleb is very, very heated about that. Uh, Nymph- Nymphadora Tonks, played by Natalia Tenna. Um, for most people, might know her as Osha from Game of Thrones. Um, or 
more recently, she played one of the Twi'leks in the Mandalor one of the, Mand- the episode six mm-hmm. of season one of Mandalorian. Um, I think these three do such an excellent job at portraying or putting the character from the book and on the page into film. And uh, before we get into my heated discussions about this about this movie, I just really wish they would have given her more of a chance to shine in the role. And that's one thing that Jennifer and I were discussing earlier when we were talking about our notes, was that it's almost a shame that, that somebody like Natalia Tenna gets to play such an iconic role who will play an iconic role in book six or in book seven, mm-hmm. whose child will go on to play iconic roles or at least to, to, to be something important in Harry's life. Yes. But also, it's just, it's a shame that we put these characters in just to sprinkle them in there and not instead of giving them their due justice yes in regards to the books now let's get to the last character and this is the one where jennifer's about to get upset luna lovegood played by ivana lynch i'm gonna say eh maybe classic ron and harry's scenario she really does look the part but she portrays Luna as this soft, airy voice character where she almost seems like she's an idiot, but she's far from it. My depiction of Luna from the books is someone who's out there, but they're obvious, they're like smart out there. The Luna that Ivana Lynch plays almost seems like she's a moron, like airheaded. I think that was the point of the book too, though. She's Looney Lovegood. She's not just Luna. She's crazy. She believes in weird things. She wears weird things. She passes out a weird magazine. But these she's are things weird. that make her weird, not dumb. But when she's like, oh, Harry, I guess I've had that happen once. It's so, like, airheaded and wispy. It just doesn't fulfill uh, the character that I had in my mind. She's just playing into that very iconic Ideal that blondes are dumb. Caleb and it's better to be to be thought of as dumb and outsmart people. Caleb, I'm gonna have to draw the line in the sand. Okay, where are you at on this? Um, I I like the character of Luna. Um, I don't like the tone. I guess whenever she talks about stuff. That part. That's what I'm getting at. But you don't like her voice. Her acting. I mean, she she, she says weird things in the book, just like Luna does in the I'm not movie. talking about her dialogue. I'm talking about the way she presents said her dialogue. tonality, the tone in her voice. I can see them too, Harry. You're just as sane as I am. <laughs> and that's important. They're called narcos. She's alive. <laughs> She's supposed to be out there. She's supposed to be extremely odd. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Never mind. I won't go there. Um, Let's get into the parts that we don't like, Jennifer, about the movie before we put Caleb in the hot seat. I'm going to go and address the one thing that just really, that, that they leave out that I think should be in the movie is the other Weasley pranks. Yes. That's, that's a huge one to me. And yet again, I'm going to come back to it. One of my favorite moments in the book, and we don't get it because Peeves isn't even here. 
is when the Weasleys leave and they're just like, give him hell, Peeves. And, and gives, like, the only time Peeves, you know, has a moment to go, I'm actually going to listen to somebody other than the Bloody Baron. And kind of goes crazy and starts doing all sorts of nonsense in the castle. Okay. All right, Caleb. It's time for Caleb in the Hot Seat. This is where our residential critic, that will be Caleb for these Harry Potter movies, lets us really know what's on his mind and how he feels about this movie. Because we know that Caleb loves the books, but he is a major critic of the movie. All right, Caleb. Caleb in the Hot Seat. Order the Phoenix. What you got? Okay, rapid fire. Um, so at the very start, the bullying scene, whenever Harry is just for whatever reason sitting on a swing by himself and then Dudley rolls up and it's just like trying to bully him. And it's just like, what happened to your mom, Potter? Is she dead? Who's Cedric? Is he your boyfriend? That is so monotone and stupid. I hate <laughs> that. Um, Bad acting. Yes. And then there's right after whenever the Dementors... Uh, um, find them and just for whatever reason Harry manages to find his wand just stick it like where his ear should be and then there's like a spark and it just lets it go we've already established that Expecto Patronum is the only way to get rid of these I don't know where that came from get it together movie um, and then they all rescue like the adults quote unquote rescue Harry from the uh the Dursleys and that's whenever they like go into the exposition of you're not actually expelled Harry uh, you got a hearing though hate it for you um, and then they start flying through London and they go right next to a boat now in my opinion like that should be more against the law than, than doing <laughs> a spell to save your life but anyway uh, once again, there's no secret keeper for Grimwald Place, so it just kind of appears. Um, then Fred and George appear next to Harry because they can apparate whenever he is talking to Ron and Hermione. And he is, his voice may be uh, a little higher than mine. And they're like, dang, Harry, why are you shouting? Harry was not shouting. Okay, come on now. That was just in, that was obviously just in the script. Um... And then it goes to the dinner scene where Tonks is just changing her appearance. Her appearance doesn't explain why. She, can, I guess she's just the only person that can do that. <laughs> I mean, if you've read the books, you know why. But if I'm just watching the movie, like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. Um, then it cuts to whenever Harry is going to Hogwarts in the carriages. And I think it's just kind of dumb that he sees Cho Chang in the carriage in front of him. Doesn't see the horses then carrying it, but whenever he turns around, he can see the threstles. So, <laughs> Caleb in the hot seat. Um, and then there's the scene whenever they get to the common room, whenever Seamus is talking about um, how his mother didn't want him to go to Hogwarts. And I'll do a little role play real quick. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so your mother believes the Daily Prophet yeah, she does. Well, <clears throat> what does he say? Your mother is a liar. Don't you ever call my mother a liar. I'll go, I'll have a go over anyone who calls me a liar. I mean, that's just, once again, bad acting and lackluster. Ron comes in. You really believe this? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And then, once again, Ron and Hermione aren't prefixed, so, yeah. I guess that they were just like, that doesn't really add anything, but I feel like it does. Um, and then we go through the school year, and of course there is, once again, no Quidditch, even though I feel like that would add some kind of, like, happiness to the story instead of this, like, bleak, ominous trek to the Ministry of Magic. Um, and then, for whatever reason, even though Hermione... And this might be in the book, too. She has trouble saying Voldemort's name, even though she was raised by muggles. She has she wasn't raised to be afraid of the name, so I don't know why she's so scared to say it. Um, then, once again, uh, Dobby shortchanged, once again, because he's the, he's the one that tells Harry about the room of requirement. And they just like, oh, yeah, it's just kind of there. They don't explain how you're supposed to get in. Gotta tickle the pear. That's to get oh, into the kitchen. It is the kitchen. You gotta walk around thinking about what you want from the room. That's right. Um, and then Cho doesn't bring her friend that eventually snitches to Dolores about Dumbledore's army. Um, and since they don't go to St. Mungo's, <clears throat> you don't get the scene with Neville and his grandmother visiting his parents. Um, then... They find out about Dumbledore's army, and once again, um, Dumbledore can just clap his hands and vanish, like there's no apparating in Hogwarts. Um, there's no friends teaching after Trelawney gets sacked. There's, let's see here. Um, then, whenever they're fighting the Death Eaters, like everybody, like all the kids get like wands held up to their throat and their neck and then the adults come in to save the day and then somehow Harry just has a wand and starts dueling with Sirius don't know where that came from but you know who cares and then you're finally facing or you're finally watching the battle you've been wanting to see Dumbledore versus Voldemort and let me tell you about the most least spectacular way Vol or Dumbledore could appear. And he just appears five flu powder through a fireplace. Stupid. After leaving through. After you know, he claps his hands, yeah. there's like a big face. Oh, yeah. I was visiting somebody and I heard there was a little <laughs> bit of trouble. Better use the flu powder. <laughs> and then um, the very, very last thing, it doesn't explain to Harry why he has to stay at his aunt and uncle's and about how whenever Lily sacrificed herself, it gave her protection over Harry. Okay, well, that concludes the first half of our podcast. Um, let's take a quick break and we'll return with the Order of the Phoenix. All right, and we're back. It's time to discuss the Half-Blood Prince, book and movie number six. Let's start with the rank. Caleb, where does this book rank with the series? Pretty good, kind of good, not very good. Uh, it's it's good. I think I like it more than Order of the Phoenix personally. Okay, Jennifer, what about you? As far as the movie goes, it's not one of my favorites. But I I used to not like the book, but I like the book a lot more now than I used to. It's so it's still it ranks pretty down there. I think you have to be like kind of an adult to appreciate. And mm -hmm. since you've grown up, 
<laughs> so this is actually my fourth favorite book. Mm-hmm. My fourth favorite book. My movie, it's actually my favorite movie. Really? Yeah, it is my favorite movie for a multitude of reasons. Okay. Caleb, where does the movie rank with you? Um, it's not as bad as Goblet or Order of the Phoenix, so not as good as one, two, or three. So, around In the four. Middle. <laughs> In yeah. the middle. What about you, Jennifer? Movie-wise, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it seven. The worst? Or, or eight. The, yeah. the worst movie. Uh-huh. Interesting. What do we love about the entry into the series? What do we love? What does the Order of the Phoenix bring in or introduce that we absolutely love? I like that it kind of, I won't say goes back to roots, but you actually do have like a mystery as to who the Half-Blood Prince is. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what Malfoy's doing all year. And you kind of get, um, yeah, that too. And a little backstory into Harry's parents. So this is why I love this this particular story so much. Is we have all these different layers. So we have the unforgivable, or we have the unbreakable vow in the back of our minds. Yeah. On top of what Malfoy is attempting to try to do with the vanishing cabinet. On top of, do we think that Harry has Voldemort's book <coughs> through the whole movie? Or maybe, even as a father's. Or even, or maybe his father's. Or I guess it's the Half-Blood Prince. We all think it might be a muggle or somebody. Do we think he may have his mother's book? Right? It's it's that mystery of like, whose book does he have? And in my opinion, it's never Snape. Yeah. It's yeah. it's never it's it never crossed my mind until the end that he, that Snape that that was Snape's book because Snape has always wanted the defense against the dark arts, mm-hmm. right? He's always loathed his idea of being potions master. So the fact that he was so good at it really kind of you know, I guess kind of solidifies that Snape can really be up there with Dumbledore and Voldemort <laughs> and the Potters as some of the greatest witches of their age. Yeah, you don't really get too much indication that <clears throat> Snape is as strong as he is and as powerful as he is. But he really is. He's, he's very knowledgeable and well more than just potions. Yeah, I mean, like, he invents his own spells and mm-hmm. curses, right? So that's pretty cool. Um Another thing that I love is about this is that the acting is finally there, in my opinion. That final moment whenever Michael Gambon looks at Alan Richter and says... Alan Rickman? Alan Rickman, I'm sorry, and says, Snape, please. It's that we can go back to it and see that he's begging for him to do it. Because at first glance, it's almost like this half-hearted... You know, Snape, please. It's like, wait a minute, what? Like, that's not begging or anything. Like, there's obviously something there. And remember, we know that Snape was supposed to do this. Like, it was it was his job all along, even before he made the Unbreakable Vow Which is to do this. completely left out. What is? The, the story to that, like, why, why Dumbledore needed Snape to kill him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um... 
it's that moment when my, but you go to how I feel about Michael Gambon, but it's also in that moment we finally see more than this awkward crying from Harry, or this moody, sad boy, frustrated where he doesn't say anything and just tries to use his emotions, or I love magic, right? Whenever he chases down Snape and says, "Fight, you coward! Fight back!" I've felt it. Like it almost. It's almost more of a, of a blow than than serious. Yeah, Dumbledore's been in it. He was the unmovable wall. Yeah, he was always going to be there, and then, just in an instant, he's not. And I think Daniel Radcliffe sells that performance at the end. It's so typical Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> But in that moment, he almost justifies that stoic, you know, cluelessness that he attempts to portray Harry as, which in my opinion is the wrong direction. But, you know, once you've been told, to, you know, once he's solidified that, you can't just change character or characters like that. But that's where I feel about that. Um, anybody else want to add anything about what they love about the Half-Blood Prince? Okay, so those are the entries that we love. It's a fine line to walk between getting the book right and the movie right. Mm -hmm. Which means that it's time for our next segment, Ravenclaw Know-It-All, which is where our resident Ravenclaws, Caleb Harris and Jennifer Pruitt, are going to attempt to tell us what exactly the book has that is lacking in the movie. All right, let's start with Jennifer. What you got? Okay, as... Cinematically beautiful and cool as the opening is for this movie with the bridge and the capturing of Ollivander. This is not where our story begins. Our story begins with Cornelius Fudge speaking to the the British Prime Minister and explaining that one, magic is real, and two, that there is a Dark Lord, you know, that Dark Lord Voldemort is on the loose and things are about to get crazy for not just the wizarding world but for everybody. Okay. So, we also, once we get to Harry going Hogwarts, Harry's savior is not Luna, as nice it is, as it is to see a little more Luna. We lose Tonks and the presence of all the auras, and that Harry's got the Order of the Phoenix still around him, even though he's not at Grimwald Place. And this is whenever you start to realize that Tonks has fallen in love with Lupin. Which is completely and utterly left out. You get no Tonks and Lupin moments. None. No. Like, there's even, I think, um, the Patronus. Her Patronus changes. Yeah, Snape comments. So it makes a snide comment about it. The quote eludes me, but it's like your last one was a bit more powerful. And now it's like a wolf to, to represent her love for Lupin. And I think that's a nice, poignant moment for them. Which is also kind of intriguing that your Patronus can change mm -hmm. like do you do you make it change or does your Patronus take on a different form based on who how, how you've changed as a person I will note that often we see that Patronuses play off of your partner like with Lily and James you have the stag and the doe Right, like I feel like in my younger years, my Patronus would definitely be some like ferocious dragon, because <laughs> that's like how 
like ferocious I was all the time. Now it's like a groundhog. And now it's like a simp. <laughs> you not say, say that name. in the podcast. Okay, go ahead. I was going to say, Snape, you know, has a doe in reference to Lily. Right. And, you know, um, Hermione and Ron, their their uh, Patronuses play off of each other as well. So I would say that it has a lot do to... Do they? Yeah. So Ron the is Jack a dog. Russell, Jack Russell and the and, otter. And the otter, how do they play off each other? It, that's just, there's a there's an explanation that J.K. Rowling gives that... that oh, okay. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. I don't remember You exactly. are the Ravenclaw know-it-all. I don't remember the exact details, but that there is that. Um, okay. We lose out on so much of the the Horcrux hunt and how it starts yes. really here. We spend a tremendous amount of time with Dumbledore and digging through not only Dumbledore's memories of Tom Riddle as a boy and in school, but other people's memories. The Mar- the, the Gaunt's memories, the, um, the Riddle old, memories. The old lady with the... Uh... Is that the Hexabah? Yeah, I think so. She has Helga Hufflepuffs. Well, the diadem. No, no, not or, the diadem. The the cup. Yes, um, diadems, Ravenclaws, my bad. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but we lose out on so many of those memories, and one of the important memories kind of ties into not kind of, but definitely ties into where we get this notion that Voldemort will never love anyone and has never known love because he is born out of a love potion, like. His mother and uh, Marvola Riddle are only together because she gave him a love potion. And the instant that she took away the magic, he freaked out and left her and abandoned her. And that broke his mother. She died giving birth to him. Mm-hmm. And even Dumbledore comments that the closest thing he's ever known to love is the snake he keeps around him. Mm-hmm. So we lose out on so much detail of Voldemort's history, and it's important history. It's it's details that we should have had. Um, that not only does he like to bully people, he also likes to have keepsakes of the people that he's hurt. Yes. Um, as far as when they get ready to celebrate Christmas, or anything one of Caleb's least liked scenes, and one of the things that he gets so oh, mad about. Get ready. Um. Is the fact that it doesn't even happen in the book. The burrow, nothing happens to the burrow. The burrow is highly protected. There are tons and tons and tons of charms and things protecting that place. And so the whole fire and Bellatrix and, and Funier Greyback coming there at all doesn't happen. That's not there. It's totally not there. I don't know why we added that scene. We could have had more vision scenes instead, but unnecessary um i think it may kind of try to add some action to the story whereas in like they knew that harry potter tries to walk this line of action versus exposition Mm -hmm. and we see that primarily in the fourth book whenever as we talked that like all it was just like a giant action sequence after another and in the fifth book you know it's really more of like what's happening at hogwarts as opposed to running around and fighting. In the sixth book, it's... I mean, a lot of people will say it's the bridge from five to seven. Mm-hmm. But really, in my opinion, the sixth book is supposed to serve character um, empathy as to why maybe we could under we can get in, this, in the mind of a meglo, megalomaniac like Voldemort. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can get into the relationship, the true relationship between Harry and Dumbledore. 
um, and the true relationship of the Order of the Phoenix. Uh, now that you know Sirius is gone, where's Harry's family going to lie? Things like that, and I think that's very grounding. And it may be a bigger bridge for us to to understand, or to at least you know enjoy the the, the happy moments in Book Seven, and let them you know, and then like the moments that hurt in Book Seven will all kind of go back to that. But I really think that Book Six is about introducing or understanding character depth. Right. And we get that with Snape. But I'm with you. We do not get that with Voldemort, and I right. don't understand. Now, the decision to burn the burrow down, I'm just going to say was we need to do something cool and have something cinematic in it before we get to the big ending. Because it can't just be this book where Harry learns how to like be a good potions master, then Dumbledore <laughs> dies. <laughs> like It's got to be more than that. Um, to kind of backtrack myself, Harry isn't picked up by Dumbledore out just at some shop next to the train. He uh, he's home with the Dursleys as per every book. Like that's a that's the start we always get is that Harry's always with the Dursleys each summer, and Dumbledore comes in with Crutcher, creature. And you know one lets him know that Grimwald Place has been left to him as an inheritance from Sirius, along with all the money that Sirius had. And that means Crutcher is now in his service, which he absolutely loathes because neither one of them like each other. And uh, this is where the Order of the Phoenix is officially going to get complete and total use of the house. Because Harry's going to leave it to them instead. Because he doesn't need it. Or he doesn't feel like he needs it. And this is where we're going to start our hunt for Horcruxes and Harry's journey. Um, we miss out with Voldemort's history. We miss out the fact that he cursed the Defense Against the Dark Arts position. That's why each year is somebody different. And it has been going that way since... Voldemort came to Dumbledore and asked to be the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, and Dumbledore turned him down. Which I'm, I've always wondered: did they ever explain, or did that explain in the first book that Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher is different every year, or is that just something the audience is meant to pick up on? I think it's just something you pick up on with Harry in school. I know, I know that they mentioned it in the book, mm-hmm. but it's it, not in the movies. But it's now. not you in the just, movie. You just get that feeling. As the series goes on, each year it's somebody different. Well, because, to be fair, the first, you know, five, I guess, are... <laughs> something happens to them. Related. Dead, memory loss, sacked, uh, wasn't even the real person. Yeah. Carried off by centaurs. <laughs> yep. And then Snape. Um, uh, we, of course, miss out on Harry and Jenny's entire relationship. Because they're dating much of this book. Like, we really start to get that connection that they have, which we don't get in the movies at all. Oh, we do? Okay, now I'm going to save that for my, uh, for the end. Um, Hashtag Harry and Hermione. Bill and Fleur are really present in this book at the beginning. Um, We know that they're in the middle somewhere when they're at the borough. We know that they're getting ready for the wedding and how much Mrs. Weasley absolutely hates Fleur. And we get the details... That Finn or Greyback is is a very important character because he not only turned Lupin, he's gonna be the one that turns Bill. Well, Ben or Ben Bill doesn't really get turned. He just kind of he gets bitten, and he's gonna be like a partial werewolf. It's not completely <clears throat> like his scars won't heal. Yeah, it's not completely like Lupin where he 
actually turns into a werewolf. werewolf they, yes. they really, it's just kind of like this crony that just shows up. Yeah, looks instead evil. of being... But he's really a sadistic, like, SOB. He is, yeah. and his, like, his whole attempt is to bite as many people as he can. Children, right? Yeah. yeah like, he wants to eat children. He, he says, like, when people wrong him, he'll make sure he's near their house on the full moon so that he can bite them. Mm-hmm. He's a... He's... He is far more important in the books than they give him in the series. He's just another lackey. Um, we're also going to say... When Harry and Dumbledore come back from finding the fake Horcrux, there's already a battle going on at Hogwarts. The Death Eaters have already come in and are fighting the Aurors that are on the grounds, and we completely leave that out, I guess, because we're going to have the great battle at Hogwarts in the next film, So why, or the, next, the, the last film. Let me push up my glasses real quick. Okay. They don't fight the oars on the ground. They come in through the room of requirement and I know, fight but the I mean, order. But I just mean they're on the grounds. They're outside. They're not in the castle destroying things. They're outside fighting the oars. <clears throat> because they have the sneak, the sneaky moment of coming in through the vanishing cupboard. Also, with that, Dumbledore freezes Harry in place to keep him from stopping Snape. It's not just a stay here, Harry, and be hidden... He hides Harry and then freezes Harry so that he can't do anything. Which is a very, very important moment. And I love you, David Yates, but I'm going to talk about this and I'm going to talk about whenever we get to my part about what I don't like about the movie. I don't understand this. Like, why do we want to keep making the hero, the chosen one, the one who's supposed to stop all the adults, why do we keep making him to be out this timid, useless, bumbling, I have no clue what I'm doing, like, boy? And because by this point he's not really that boy anymore. Because he's been through the ringer and back. It, it, since since day one, Harry would step in front of a killing curse to save someone he loved. Mm-hmm. That it would happen in the first book, it would happen in the second, third, fourth, and fifth, and it would dang sure happen in this book. Harry would have intervened. With Which, having no clue what to do, he would have tried to do something, and I hate that. Yeah, and that's why why it's such an important detail that's left out is is Knowing the kind of person Harry is, knowing that he would save anyone he loves or cares about like, from certain death, he freezes him so he can't intervene because this moment has to happen. Snape has to kill him because, one, he's already dying. His, his, his not just an attempt, he completes the task in breaking the curse on the Gaunt Ring, which is, as we know later, the... One of the Horcruxes. No, it's one of the Deathly Hallows. Sorry. One of the Deathly Hallows. Um, he breaks that curse, and we know with, by the, the decaying of his hand, he's dying. He's going to die. It doesn't matter what anybody does. There's no cure for it. He can't fix it, not even with the Elder Wand. We know he's going to die, and therefore this moment has to happen, and it has to be Snape because he has to keep Draco from making that that turn. Um, I think that's going to be all the notes. Okay, so let's get to tone and theme. Okay, so we're talking about tone and theme, which is something that must be addressed, and we're talking about the book and the movie adaptation. So, um, I will start us off. Tone and th- the tone for the book and movie, in my opinion, are are both supposed to be dark. The movie, however, has this lighthearted moment, like when they're making potions, a lot of times, mm-hmm. and you get that like bubbly, you know, cheerful orchestrated music coming through and I just don't really know if that's prevalent if that's how I feel in the book that Harry's having this like 
whimsical moment where he's finally, you know, succeeding in potions. It's more of this like cautious, you know, attempt, this misplaced trust that he's putting in the Half-Blood Prince. And I don't know if that's exactly how I would play that scene. Now, to be fair, I don't really know if, if you know, movie 5, 6, 7, and 8 would really work if it's just doom and gloom the whole time, considering, we're, you know, the audience that's being targeted. But a couple of things that I do want to talk about, even though I think the tone is slightly missed in the book, but I do think the tone works for the movie, um, are the themes. So, self-sacrifice. We've already talked about that with Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. Do we think that's prevalent in the movie? Yeah, I think so. I think it... I mean, although we don't get the backstory that Snape and Dumbledore have the understanding, I think we get visually that Snape is taking that moment from Malfoy. And right. that's because of Dumbledore. To protect innocence. Yes. So, And that's at the behest of Dumbledore. Let's talk about my favorite one. And this is the theme that I think puts so many layers that makes not only the book so well written, but makes the movie work so well. And that is the theme of trust. We've got the trust that Narcissa puts into Snape. Into Snape the trust that Voldemort puts into Malfoy. Mm-hmm. The trust that all the Death Eaters put into Malfoy. <laughs> and into Draco. Mm-hmm. To carry out this task. They all agree and at the same time, is it ever like did we have we ever really had a discussion about why we know Malfoy's not going to succeed, yeah. or does does Voldemort really think that Malfoy has a shot? I think it's kind uh, of is a it shot. toying with with Lucius. I think it's that. I think this is an opportunity for him to basically take revenge on the fact that Lucius didn't stick around, that Lucius wasn't as loyal as he should have been. And he messed up at the Ministry of Magic, and he did with the uh, with the. So this is almost like punishment, because mm-hmm. you know Draco Perfect. says in the movie that like if I don't do this, he's gonna kill me. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like so like maybe now we do have the discussion that if Draco doesn't succeed, he's going to die. Yes, and this is punishment because Lucius is so half-hearted about everything he does, incompetent, incompetent. That he can't succeed in anything mm-hmm. because he, you know, sucks up. So we have those ideas of trust. Then we have the idea of trust between Slughorn and Harry. And okay. Harry's attempts to to get the memory. Yes, and Harry's attempts to get the memory, and Slughorn finally, like, accepts what he needs to do and trust Harry with the memory mm-hmm. knowing very well that he is now choosing sides mm-hmm. up until that moment it was always Slughorn kind of playing the middle ground here trying to save his own skin the Death Eaters have came a knocking obviously they want him they haven't captured him or done anything to him so he's mm-hmm. obviously played that side well enough for them to kind of you know leave, leave, him, leave, him, leave alone. him alone he comes to Hogwarts but he doesn't necessarily ever Acknowledge anything that he had a, that he had partaking in anything mm-hmm. of Voldemort's rise to power, and then he does. So there's this trust there. Also, let me backtrack really quickly. Speaking of Slughorn, going back to the acting, Ron also finally sells it when he takes the love potion that was given to him. <laughs> like Ron finally comes through with there. Anyways, backtrack or uh, forward track back to trust, and then we have the ultimate trust. Okay, 
No, 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 okay, hold on. I'm getting ahead of myself. The trust between Harry and Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whenever Dumbledore's finally starting to communicate, and I think all of this is prevalent in the in the movie. Yeah. Um, and then as Caleb Caleb so elegantly put it, is that Dumbledore is that wall that will always be there. And now, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Right. He all he can do is trust what Dumbledore told him about it, and that's what's going to carry to the end of the series is that faith that they put in what Dumbledore told them. Yeah. And whenever all the stuff that he eventually gives, like leaves to them in the seventh uh, book, you know, they can't figure it out just yet, but it was all always plans in motion. Yes. Trust Dumbledore. Um, And finally the trust that Dumbledore puts in Severus. That idea of trusting somebody, man, like it sounds like such a a small theme, but we see how all of these relationships work in the sixth book and sixth movie. That's why I love it so much. I really do. I really think that this theme shines through so well in both, and it helps us not only understand the characters, but what they have to do. Mm-hmm. It draws that line. Which side are you on? You have to pick. No more Mundungus Fletcher or Slughorn playing the middle ground. You have to pick. Now, last one, identity. Harry's identity is finally starting to take form. This identity crisis of, can I really be the chosen one? Really, like, whenever he goes with with Michael Gammon, and Michael Gammon has that killer performance when he's drinking the potions. Mm-hmm. And he's like on his knees and he's like begging for mercy and telling him no. You can look in his eyes and see. I'm sorry. That's just something Richard Harris probably couldn't have done. Which is get on his knees and, <laughs> you know, act like he was dying. Hey, he they could put Paz down for him. <laughs> yeah. um, we finally see Harry take forward and said, this is it. Yeah. Whenever this he is ch- his task. Whenever he chases Snape down, that's it. He's taking on Fenrir Greyback, Bellatrix Lestrange. He's taking on everyone. Malfoy, he's like, I don't care. It's time. Yeah. It's I don't really care what happens to me. It's very fool, foolish of him. It's really full on stepping into, I have to do this. Yes. This isn't anyone else's task. It's mine. It's mine. I love that. And I think that comes through in the movie mm-hmm. just as well as it does the book. Okay. Time for Cinephile Cam. This is where we talk about a couple performances Standout things that happen. We've already talked about David Yates in our last one. He's the director in this one. Um, so let me talk about the... It's a, It's going to be a short one this time. And that is Horace Slughorn, <clears throat> Jim Broadbent. <clears throat> I'm not sure how I feel about it. I was going to say, he has his moments. But there are so many moments where I'm just like, he's too stuttery. Jim Broadbent is, if I had never read the books... I would love this Slughorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, he fits the role. He's older. He's kind of quirky. Yeah. He's really like that, you know, quirky science teacher we all had in <laughs> high school. He really, because then that's what he teaches. Yeah. But it's not the Slughorn that I I feel like is present in the book. And that is, I'm not going to go with Jim Broadbent's acting. I'm going to go with. I don't know if it's if it's the direction he was told to go in mm-hmm. or what, but there's something missing with this character 
that's not in the book. Like, I wanted something that's a little more serious. Yeah. Right? That's a little more... Um, that teacher that's so smart mm-hmm. that you want to try to impress them because yeah. they're so smart. Well, that's I, what I feel about Slughorn, and that's I don't get that from this and book. And that's important because those are the students that Slughorn goes after. Yes. He Slug goes, Club. The Slug Club, yeah. The, the smart, the uh, powerful, the wealthy... Those that are going to go on to give him some kind of renown as being their teacher. Yes. People like Lily. And like I and I just don't get that from that character, from the mm-hmm. way he was directed in, in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that's all I have for that one. So it's time for real, Parts We Hate. Real quick before yeah. we go Parts We Hate. I just want to point out that this, you talked about how the acting really comes into play for like, for Daniel Radcliffe. I want to talk about Tom Felton. And yes, and uh, yes, how yes. incredible this movie is for him. Like he really comes in to that character of being malicious but terrified at the same time. At this, like we talked about with Harry, he like, he also acknowledges he has to step into this role. And he this is, is his task. And he does such a phenomenal job of being this very stressed out. I've got to make this happen, or it's my life moment. And Especially like in the bathroom right before the duel, before he gets hit with the Sectum Sempra. He's very much like, can I do this? Am I going to do this? Kind of freaking out moment. And you can just see the stress and, and how kind of the year is aging him, even though he's still supposed to be so young. Right. Um, I will say, though, I've been kind of a fan of Tom Felton since... Sorcerer Stone. Yeah, he like, does. Uh, he, he, he's done pretty well through all, we, all the movies. But we just really get to see the depth of his acting yes. in this one because it follows so much of him in this yes. one. Yes, we finally get some exposition for him. Yes. All right. Parts we hate. Uh, Jennifer, what do you not like about this movie? Oh. Slash book, but we're going to go with the movie. I know in my initial reads through and watches of this movie, I felt like a lot doesn't happen. Like, it's kind of the book where not a lot happens. Even though... I'm doing a heavy eye roll right now. Shut up. I know a lot happens. But there's so much of, like, Harry, you know, besides being with Dumbledore, like, when he's just around school and doing things in school, it just seems kind of slow in comparisons to the things that we've just left behind with, like, the Order of the Phoenix and the Goblet of Fire. It's kind of slower in tone. It's a slow burn. And that's okay. Because, like I said, as a reread through, as an older person, I really love this book. Okay. But for me, initially, it was a slow burn. It was one that I just didn't love. So, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if I ha- if you haven't heard already, that I am Team Harry and Hermione. That's who I think should have ended up together, not heavy, Harry and Ginny. Heavy, heavy eye roll. And because of that, I'm going to give some very, very awkward, I don't know what people were thinking about why... My biggest problem with this movie, and that is the weird social interactions between Harry and Ginny. So, there's like the beginning of the movie, right? And Harry ends up in the burrow, like outside in like the swampy part. And then Ginny comes, she's like, oh, is Harry here? Right? And they're like about to like do this like kiss thing. And then she like bends down and ties his shoe. Like, that's so weird and awkward. <laughs> like, they're just staring at each other. She goes, oh, let me tie your shoe for you. This is not what makes me think that these two are about to be a great couple. And then she, like, wipes his mouth and gets, like, you know, like, dirt or something, like, off of him, like, at another point. And then everything else after that that the movie portrays is just these weird times where they just kind of, like, 
awkwardly glance at glance at each Yet other. Again, that's because they're kind of secretly dating. That's that's the thing. Like in the book, they're they're dating. Right. I'll talk about the movie and the awkward. Like, I know. It's like okay, so here's the scene. You two need to really like let the audience know that you two are going to be a couple, and that we're going to hit that. Okay. So I want you two to like look into each other's eyes, and I want you to bend down and tie a shoe. What? 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 <laughs> yeah, I really think that'll sell so, the point you, that you're in love with this guy. So that sounds more to me like that's the director's fault than their fault. I mean, I'm just saying it's weird and it's awkward. And there's and there's up until this moment, there was like no indication that Harry and Ginny were going to really be a thing. So your Hermione team Harry ship is because of the movies, not because of the books. No, it's it's in the it's in the books too. Like Harry, like Hermione is always there for Harry, right? Harry is like it's just it's just meant to be together. They're they best fit friends. perfectly. They don't fit perfectly. And best friends can can be no. can be a thing. No. They fit perfectly and it makes more no. sense. It makes way more sense than Ron and Hermione. Oh, FYI, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you when I backtracked the reason why her, her, Harry and Hermione's Patronuses work off, work off each other. First off, an otter is part of the weasel family. So there's the Weasley. And also, Jack Terriers are primarily known back in the day to hunt down otters, chase down otters. There you go. So there's that. Anyways, so that's Harry so and Ron Hermione. And, that's Ron and Hermione because Harry is a stag like his father. What's Jenny's Patronus? Ooh. That's a good one. So, Ginny's Patronus is, as I Google it right now, is a horse. So, I don't know how a horse and a deer go together either. If anything, I'm feeling like Severus with his doe and Harry with his stuff. <laughs> After all this time. <laughs> Always. Always. <laughs> So you're saying that like Snape really like on his dying words just wanted to tell Harry that he loved him this whole time. <laughs> well, I mean, he tells him to look at him. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting weird. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. all right. So the reason we talked about people's patronus is changing to match the people that they're with, and that's why. Oh, here we go. Ron and Hermione's stick together. Jenny's doesn't change when Harry and Jenny get together because Jenny has fully realized who she is, and Harry takes Jenny for exactly who she is. There's no need for change. But why doesn't Harry's change? Because Harry's who he is as well. He's not going to change and Jenny accepts him for but who he is. What, what, what is there about Jenny that nobody can accept? She's literally a blank slate character that any girl can identify with. She's a blank slate character in the movies. She's not in the books. Okay. All right. She's strong-willed. She's excellent at school. She's Everybody's a rolling Quidditch their eyes player. right now. Because you guys are losers. Let's get to our final part and that is Caleb in the hot seat. This is the part where <laughs> Caleb really lets us know why he's a critic of the film even though we know that he loves the book and loves the universe. What exactly are your problems with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince? I blinked again. Alright, Caleb, go for it. Um, so, once again at the beginning there's no scene with the Muggle Minister kind of like tying the worlds together. There is a scene where, like, the Death Eaters, like, break a bridge, but you see, like, everybody run off. So it kind of just seems, like, mischievous more than, like, oh, man, these guys are really out for muggles. And then um, there's a scene very close to that whenever Harry is in the coffee shop or something at the train station, and he's reading the Daily Prophet. And then one of the muggle waitresses who's putting the Mac on him... 
Um, it's like, I swear I saw one of those pictures move the other day. Are you kidding me? Like, how is this not a breach? Um, and then this also brings up a point. Harry is like number two on the Death Eaters hit list. Dumbledore maybe being number one. And he is just allowed to roam freely. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> That's valid, a good point. Valid point. Valid point. Um, and then, like, after Dumbledore meets him and they apparate, this is the first time you, like, I guess really see the apparition to Harry, or the apparition going through, not just someone popping in. And they just kind of, like... Was that was apparition, wasn't it, Professor? Yes, it was Harry. And then they walk into Slughorns, and that was just. Man. I was gonna note this is the year that they learn apparition, except for Harry because he's not old enough. Yes, and. But we got to make a movie here. <laughs> then whenever they get the slug, important details. When they get the Slughorns house, there's just like some bad timing in the, in the acting, like. Some of the dialogue is just very rushed, and it completely pulled me out that this is a movie not a, not like something I'm watching not with Michael Gammon though yes it was with Mar- Michael no actually it was with Slughorn never Let's mind told Slughorn. you yeah, it's not Michael Gammon um, and then Slughorn uh, says that he taught Lily but not serious however I'll pull up my glasses real quick they were in the same year together <laughs> actually <laughs> yeah um, and then there's like this whole Harry was hitting with that uh, muggle waitress and then whenever he gets to the Weasleys, it's just like, oh, Jenny, like, come on, dude. That's why that scene is terrible. That that train scene should not exist. Yeah. And then, of course, who's there along with the Weasleys? None other than Hermione, which leads me to a point that I'm pretty sure Hermione's parents don't even realize they have a daughter anymore. <laughs> like, in, the, in at least the last two, it's just every time Harry shows up, Hermione's already there. She's there in the Goblet of Fire, too. It's also like, do, do they not want her around? <laughs> yes. So, Does she choose not to be around? I'm just going to say in the seventh in the seventh movie, when it was like that sad scene, they probably, she probably didn't even need to modify their memories. Like, Who are you, lady? Get out of my house. It's like, oh, she was like, I just had to walk around and take all the pictures of me out of there. <laughs> um, and then they're sneaking around Hogsmeade behind Draco. And then once again... Harry, they just, like, forget that he has an invisibility cloak. And so, instead of, like, tailing them, they have to climb on a roof of a building to see what Draco's up to. Oh, and not Alley. Yeah. And then we get to the train scene whenever Malfoy stuns Harry and puts his cloak on him. And who finds him but none other than Luna having her stupid goggles on and this make-believe stuff that just so happens to be around Harry and that's how she finds him. Raxbert, your head is full of him. Yeah, stupid. Haters. Um, and then you never know what the Al scores were in the movies. So, even though they talk about it, that Harry needed um, an outstanding in potions when Snape taught it, he just needs an exceeds expectations, which he got... For Slughorn. As in a note, that's one of those moments where, uh, despite Dolores' teachings all year, the Ministry still conducts uh, the Defense Against the Dark Arts uh, owls the same. And, like, that's where Harry shows off his Patronus for the first time to, like, adults. Maybe for a few extra points? Yeah. 
Um, then there is a part uh, whenever they're showing Dumbledore's memory of young Tom. I won't say Tom Felton, Tom Riddle, <clears throat> where he like sets his wardrobe on fire, and he just doesn't even react. Like my reaction be, oh my gosh, where's their fire? Where's their water? There's that's all. That's literally all my stuff because I'm an orphan. Um, then once again, Quidditch is cool. I wish there was more. Um, and then we get to the Christmas part whenever. Obvious trap whenever Bellatrix just runs saying she killed Sirius Black and they just run into the cornfields or sweet fields so they can't really see each other. Obvious trap and then no one gets hurt but they blow up um, the burrow which this is a family of wizards. I'll tell you I'm a muggle. Augmente. Boom. Your house is saved. <laughs> and they even point out in the beginning that when, when Slughorn messes up the house, they just kind of wave their wands and everything's back in place. So Also, you said it was a trap, but what were they really... I mean, like, they had everything there to trap Harry and Ginny in the middle of the cornfield. Yeah. And it was like... And then, like, was the whole point to burn the burrow down? I, I Like, why did they know. not just do that to begin with? And maybe again, even killed some characters. David it was Gates, just please a, explain. Yeah, David just... Yates, I'm sorry I defended you, but as I talk about it, I may be coming to a conclusion that I'm not sure about. <laughs> um, not a not a scene that was needed. So, in the second cringiest scene in the whole series happens in this. Oh. Whenever Ron accidentally gets poisoned and Lavender Brown runs my in there. Wand. Why didn't nobody tell me about my one one And... All these adults are around, and her and Hermione start arguing, like, I'm his girlfriend. Well, I'm his friend. Ugh. If I would have, like, I would just walked out. <laughs> oh, to be young and feel the keen sting of love. It's, oh man, it's, it's, make, it's giving me goosebumps just thinking about it. And then Harry almost kills Draco, and what does he do but just 180 and run away? <laughs> so dumb. And then, you cannot apparate in Hogwarts. Not even the headmaster can do this. But what do they do? They apparate away and then back again. And then we get to the scene of Draco corners uh, Dumbledore. And you know all the Death Eaters are going to him to kill him, and then Harry's below or Harry's below him, and Snake finds him and just just says shh to him, and then walks up. Like what in the world? Why was that scene even added? Like our. Oh yeah, Snake might be a good guy. Who knows? And then he kills Dumbledore. So. After that, they all take a, they all run away from out of the castle, blowing everything up as they go. Which leads me to my last point: Where in the world are the ores that are supposed to be protecting them? Right. I don't I don't understand. They just the only person chasing after them is Harry. <laughs> which, to my point, that's why I talked about they left out the battle because that's Harry and, and Dumbledore come back and, and they're not even just the, the ores. You know, dang well Minerva McGonagall is going to be up in there. <laughs> Like, being a Banff, right? I'm sorry. 
But out of all the people that are Death Eaters, right, I would put Minerva McGonagall over all of them other than Voldemort. Before we end, I totally forgot to, to make this point earlier in the Ravenclaw note all. Dumbledore's funeral is completely cut. Oh, I thought you mentioned that. Yes, it is. I thought I did too, and I was sitting here thinking, I don't think I did. That is such an important moment to have for all the characters, one, to kind of grieve and take in the fact that they've lost their leader. The greatest wizard of their time. Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, David Yates. <laughs> we see so many people, we see so many familiar faces. And it's really an opportunity to, to take in how big the community was around Dumbledore. But now, hopefully, we can at least understand why this is my favorite film. There's so much at work here. I know, I know old David Yates may leave some stuff out. We've lost But, man, it's just so well done. The acting's finally mm-hmm. there. The mm. story's there. It's enriched. <laughs> We've got the death of it's Dumbledore, which is probably my favorite, or at least one of my favorite characters in the universe. So, yeah. So... With that being said, um, thank you everyone for joining us and we will see you back next time for our finale when we talk about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2. Have a good one. Thanks for joining us one more time and listen back next time for the grand finale of the Harry Potter series. And then next time, listen as the gang tackles the Marvel Cinematic Universe.